As you're doing that, you can go ahead, if you have your Bible, um, go ahead and find your way to Matthew chapter 28. We're going to start there, but then we're going to be all over the place today. So you're going to have to like strap on your seatbelt because um, we got a lot of ground to cover. So uh, last week we started a series, and uh, hopefully this week uh, you know what that series is because when you walked in today, everybody looked at the wall in the lobby. Yes? Yeah. Or on your way out last week? And in that lobby, let's repeat, what does it say? It says, with Jesus, like Jesus, for Jesus. That was really lame. Let's try it again. Okay, with Jesus, like Jesus, for Jesus, which shapes how we understand who Jesus is as a church and how we engage him and follow him. And so we're talking about those three elements of who Jesus is these three weeks to help us understand what does it look like in our lives to be the kind of people that experience those things with Jesus. And those words, with, like, and for, describe, in simple terms, bigger kind of theological terms that we throw, uh, throw around. Last week we talked about being with Jesus is this thing called reconciliation. How whether we know it or not, apart from Jesus, we are separated from God and everything in our lives and everything around us is broken down because of sin and failure. But Jesus, through his death on the cross, takes us who are far from God and brings us back into relationship. And it's not just for us, it's for everyone and for the whole world. So basically, reconciliation, being with Jesus, is seeing the things wrong in our life made right, seeing the things wrong in our world made right, because we are, what, what we read from in Paul's writings, he says, we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. We are actually ambassadors for Jesus in being reconcilers in our community. So we talk, that's what it means to be with Jesus. This week we're going to talk about, this is one's probably the most difficult, like Jesus. And the word like describes another term that we use in the church is called discipleship, which sometimes you don't understand or that's a loaded term. But we'll talk a little bit about that this morning. And, and ultimately what God is in, in the process of doing in us when we come back to him and we are reunited or reconciled back to God through Jesus, the process of knowing him is becoming like him which means that our lives start to reflect and look like the way Jesus lived 2,000 years ago. Now, if you've read the Bible and you know a little bit about Jesus in your mind, you're thinking, yeah, that's going to happen. I'm going to live and talk and think and act like Jesus. Come on, Jesus was God. I can't do that. Yes, you can. In fact, God desires that. In fact, God's purposed your life to look like Jesus in the world and so before we, we actually jump into the passages, I just want for a moment, just think for a moment. I know at least you can find at least one person in your life that when you think about them or you look at them, you think, you know what, they're, they're close to probably what Jesus was like. There's characteristics about the way they treat people, the way they live their life, the way they have integrity, the char- their character. That you'd say, you know what, they have an element to them that seems to be like who Jesus was. Anybody, you got that person in mind? Okay, I know for me, probably the person that's demonstrated that the most to me is my dad. And you've heard lots of stories about my dad. But I watched my dad uh, and, and as I was growing up. Obviously, he mentored me and he, he loved me and he discipled me and disciplined me and all those things that a dad does. But I always got to just watch closely on, on what he said and what he did and watch how those things matched up. One of the times that I remember, actually, I think we were looking for a car for me for the first time. So we were actually in North Hollywood and we were at a used car lot, and, uh, and so right, right as we were looking, all of a sudden we heard some screeching in the street behind us, and then a guy on a motorcycle uh, locked up his, his wheels, and he lost control, and he went flying off the bike, and he hit the ground. I mean, this all happened right in front of us, 
And so when he hit the ground, he was dazed and kind of laying there. And he got up and he sat up in the car. A car had cut him off and then took off. And so he was just laying there with his bike laid out. And, and he was starting to bleed pretty heavily from his head. And so my dad and I ran over. And, and just so you understand, this was at the height of the AIDS crisis. When blood was something that you stayed away from, you did not touch. If someone was bleeding, you, just, you didn't do anything because everyone was convinced that just by touching that, that obviously you were going to have AIDS. And so, uh, so this guy's sitting there, and he's just blood just pouring out of his head. And so someone called 911, and I remember we go over, and I'm standing there. I'm thinking, blood! And my dad kneels down next to the guy, and he pulls the handkerchief out of his pocket, and he lays his hand on the guy's forehead. And there's so much blood. I mean, it's just, it's coming out. Now, in my, my dad's handkerchief is just completely red. His hand is covered. The guy's blood is just running dad, down my dad's arm. And I'm just looking. And I, at first, I'm thinking, Dad, you're going to get AIDS. That's what I was thinking. And not once did my dad hesitate. And he sat there, and we waited until the ambulance came. And I remember we were just talking to this guy. He's kind of dazed. But all I could think about is, I'm thinking, my dad loves this guy that we don't even know, who's all tatted up. His life is probably, in my mind, I'm passing judgment. How does this guy deserve help? All this thing's going through my mind. And my dad is showing this guy compassion and could get AIDS because of this, but it doesn't matter. And I remember walking away from that thinking about, that must have been like Jesus. You remember a thing called leprosy? You remember Jesus wasn't afraid to touch a leper when everybody else would stay away? That's the kind of thing that Jesus would do. That's the kind of thing that God wants us to live out in our lives, to actually be like Jesus. So with that in mind, we're going to hit a number of passages this morning. I'm going to start with kind of the most famous passage on this thing called discipleship. In Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, these are some of Jesus' final words to his followers, to his disciples. And this is what he said. It's probably a familiar passage, most likely. He says, Then Jesus came to them and he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. So what is Jesus' final command before he goes back to the Father? He says to to do what? To make disciples. You've probably heard that once or twice if you've been around Antioch. And many of us go, yeah, disciples. What is a disciple? Well, literally translated, it means learner. It means someone who's a learner, or we use the term probably better as follower. But I think probably even a modern-day term that's probably better than either those two would be an apprentice. Not the apprentice, like Donald Trump's apprentice, okay? But the apprentice, like an apprentice comes along and sits under a master and learns by example, learns by teaching and apprentices and learns by actually doing. That's what it means to become like Jesus. Over time, you and I become more and more like him because we follow him. So, so if you and I understand that, then I think probably, this is my take, I think the best description of discipleship and being like Jesus is actually in 1 John chapter 2, Verses 5 and 6, it says this. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him, here it is, must live as Jesus did. If we, are, if we know him, then we are to live like him. Now here's the, here's the key. The goal of discipleship, the goal of being like Jesus, is not to copy Jesus it's actually to be like Jesus. Do you understand? 
we get really proficient at copying the behavior of Jesus and always it ends in failure and frustration because it moves towards legalism. But what if you and I actually became like Jesus in that by our nature and our character, our actions reflected who Jesus is, not because we're simply copying what we've seen, but because we're living out who we are. That's a big difference. So how do we get there? How do we experience it? How, how do we become like Jesus? I want to run through just five things this morning from different passages that help us to understand this is not comprehensive of how we become like Jesus, but these are some key things that we have to hit on in this process of becoming like Jesus. The first one is this. In order to become like Jesus, you and I have to understand the teachings of Jesus. So in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, John says this. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Everything you and I have in the scriptures, primarily too, when we talk about the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the recording of Jesus' actions and his words are super important for our faith. Not that somehow they are more important than any other areas of scripture, but they are vital to us understanding who Jesus is. And so when we understand that, we have to think about the fact this is what is amazing. Because of God's sovereignty and God's power, 2,000 years after scripture is recorded, comes into existence, you and I today, this is what's crazy. We have the teachings of Jesus pretty much word for word after 2,000 years of human history. And they come in the form of the scriptures. And primarily, in a lot of our modern translations, when you read through the Gospels, many of the Bibles have red letters. What are the red letters? They're the actual, actual words of Jesus. So we have, this is crazy, we have 2,000-year-old writings that are inspired by God that tell us the very words that Jesus said and the actions that he did and the instruction that he gave to his original followers in our hands. In fact, most households have an average of five Bibles in the United States, even if they don't read them. We have access to the scriptures. But just think about that. That's, that's why the discipleship essential classes, the DE 1, 2, 3, 4, those are all based on one primary textbook, the teachings of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. They are, it's all red letter. It's all, that's what those are about. That's why we push so hard about DE classes. Not Pastor John's opinion, not a great idea, but what did Jesus say? What did he teach us? What did he say? What does it mean to follow him? What does it look like to be like him? Jesus actually tells us that. In fact, the very things that the disciples, when Jesus says in Matthew 28, to go and to teach them all that I've commanded, you know what he was referring to? The red letters. He had already given his, the apostles, he said, listen, I taught you guys for the last three years. This is what it means to, to be, really, to be human, to live the life that God's purposed for you. I've laid it out for you. Now, go teach everybody else this is what you're supposed to do. I get a little excited because God, in his amazing sovereignty and ability, has sustained the very words of Jesus for us to have today. The question is, when was the last time you read the red letters? When was the last time you just let Jesus settle in? Not your opinion, not somebody, somebody else's opinion, but just open your Bible and see what Jesus said. It's powerful. I am stuck in the Gospel of Matthew, and I have been there, no joke, for six months. I've taught on the Gospel of Matthew so many times in my life, but I just keep reading. I'm like, how could I not see that? How could I not understand that? Because what I'm learning again from Jesus, what it means to follow him, what, my, what it looks like when my life looks like him. So we have to start by understanding the teachings of Jesus. Second thing, doesn't get any easier from there. Choose radical obedience. 
So remember what Jesus says, teaching them to do what? Obey everything I've commanded you. Sometimes obedience is not very fun. How many know? Sometimes that means I have to learn to do something that maybe I don't necessarily want to do, but there's some value in that, that process. And this is true for you and I because we live in a culture that's counter to what Jesus says our lives are supposed to be. But listen to 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. It says, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we do what? If we keep his commands. So we're with him, and we know we were with him, we'll become like him. Why? Because we'll keep his commands. Verse 4 says, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. That means there's something in us that changes when we're with Jesus, when we're reconciled back to God, that we want to strive to become like him. Why is that so hard? Because everything around us tells us to live the opposite of the way Jesus lives. The culture we live in, we are literally swimming upstream in culture. But it's not impossible. But you and I have to understand that. And sometimes, even in our own Christian faith and in the church, the, cult, the culture around us infiltrates into the rhythm of life, and we buy into the culture and the culture's way of living, and we call it Christian, and it's not. Jesus lived counter to the culture. That's why he was so controversial. That's why he offended a lot of people, because when he came, even, you know who he offended the most? Church people. That's who he offended the most because they had established a way of doing church and being a, a Christian or at that time, obviously, the nation of Israel of but what it was to be God's people that when Jesus came, they're like, no, 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 you got it wrong. But they were the ones that had it wrong. In Matthew chapter 5, and again, those red letters, Jesus talks about, in verse 44, this really foreign concept to our culture where he says this. He said that you and I are actually supposed to love our neighbors. And pray for those who persecute us. Does that sound opposite of the culture that we live in? Our culture is about revenge. Our culture is about payback. Our culture thinks it's about justice. But it's our form of justice, which means people pay for the things that they do. But what if we actually lived the way that Jesus lived, and we actually loved our enemies and prayed for those who were, were working against us? Our lives would look different. People might actually look at you and think, wow, you kind of act like what I've heard about Jesus. And if we go the other way and we're just like the culture and we take revenge on people who have done harm to us, then we're just like everybody else. Here's a pretty good example. If I go ahead and throw this picture up here, it might be familiar to somebody. Back in 1981, those of you who were alive back then um, or heard about it in the news, remember Pope John Paul II? There was an assassination attempt on his life. And this picture is the man who tried to kill him. This is the one who tried to assassinate him. This is Mehmet Ali Ajad, and he thought in his mind, and kind of wasn't clear, and with some others thought that somehow the Pope was going to basically go after Islam, and so as a Muslim, he took it personally, and they planned this plot to kill the Pope, and obviously, thank God that it didn't, they didn't succeed, but, but after all of this, now Ahmed's in prison, but who comes to visit him? The very man he tried to kill. And in that time that they had together, the Pope extended him forgiveness. Wait, wait a second. This is the guy that plotted to kill you and almost did. Came very close. This is the guy who sees his religion, Islam, is, that, is against your religion, Catholicism, and you're extending him forgiveness? That's crazy. No, that's Jesus. 
That's what Jesus looks like. What if that was the norm for people who followed Jesus? It would change the culture. It would change the climate of the world that we live in because people would realize Christians are for real. They really are like Jesus. They actually really have learned the title, like back in Antioch, Christians, little Christs, like Jesus. See, that's what it means to choose radical obedience. Uh, pastor and author A.J. Sabota said this. He's just summarizing what's true about Jesus. He says, Jesus is the only God who makes his enemies friends. All other gods make their enemies pay. Jesus makes them friends. Think about that for a moment in your life, because that might be one of the most difficult things for us, is to take an enemy who maybe has been a lifelong enemy, and maybe they've done horrific things to you. But radical obedience, being like Jesus, means you look at that person and you choose forgiveness instead of judgment or revenge. That's what it looks like to be like Jesus. And there's a third thing, and that is to become like Jesus, you and I need to establish spiritual rhythms in our life. So here's the key. This is one of the biggest struggles that we have, and I've really been confronted with this a lot in the last couple months of my own life. When we look at Jesus and you read through the scriptures, there's this tendency like, yeah, I need to be like that. And so we work really hard to try to be like Jesus, and then we keep failing. Anybody relate? Anybody ever failed your attempt to be like Jesus? I do all the time. And then there's this frustration. It's like, I know what I'm supposed to be like, but I can't do it, so I don't know what to do. And so the problem is, is that, again, we're trying to pretend and copy Jesus and thinking that's all we're supposed to do is duplicate his behavior, which we can't. What you and I see when you read through the Gospels and you read the life of Jesus, you see what Jesus, what was produced in Jesus as a human being, being filled with the Holy Spirit, submitted to the Father. That's what was produced in his life. And that came out a rhythm, through a rhythm of life that Jesus lived while he was here that many of us, either we write off as something that's not a part of our Christian faith today or we don't see it throughout the passages of Scripture. There's things, and maybe some of you are familiar, there's these things called spiritual disciplines. And we don't like that because the word discipline is always negative. It's rhythms of life that we establish and to live in a healthy way that connects us with Jesus, that begins to change and shape us and inform our character and transform us from the inside out. Why is this important? Because you and I keep trying to replicate and copy Jesus. We can't do it. We need God's life of who Jesus is to be produced in us. It's like a little kid who wants to go be like his, his, his idol, a baseball player. And so what does he do? He goes and he buys the uniform of that baseball player and he watches that baseball player when he's at bat and he copies everything that baseball player does. The way he puts on his batting gloves, the way he stands in the batter's box, the way he swings the bat, the way he tips his hat, everything. And that kid does everything that, that his, his idol does. Is he going to be that baseball player? No. Because he hasn't done the things that produced the way that baseball player plays the game. So here's a list of disciplines. Some of you got these down. Some of you know, this is not a comprehensive list, but these are things that Jesus had in his life that you and I should have in ours. The first one is this thing called solitude. Anybody ever heard of that? Like being alone and quiet. Oh, God forbid. I don't want to do that. I'm an extrovert, right? Introverts love this. Extroverts like, I'll die. Read through the Gospels. How many times does it say Jesus withdrew? to a lonely place so he could be alone with the Father. When was the last time you withdrew from your life? When was the last time you took a day or even an hour and you unplugged yourself from all electronics, from all other people, and from all other things and just said, you know, I'm just going to be alone. 
Our staff is supposed to. They don't always do it. I'm going to get on them. I know I do it every three months. The staff gets one paid sabbatical day every three months, which is not a day to catch up on errands. It's not a day to catch up on work. It's a day just to go in solitude, be with Jesus. It's one of my favorite days out of the three months for me, just to be by myself and listen without agenda. What is Jesus saying? My place of solitude is a beach in Oxnard that I will walk for miles, just me and Jesus. I say hi to people, but I don't talk to anybody else unless somebody's dying and needs help, but I'll just be by myself. Second thing, everyone's favorite, fasting. Yes. Starving myself and feeling the pain of hunger, I really want to do that, right? Jesus did it all the time. In fact, at one time, Jesus went 40 days. 40 days. That was a rhythm in Jesus' life. You know, we have an opportunity every year, and this is going to be the third year coming up to do this. We had a thing called Pray See Me. We started three years ago, two years ago. This is actually the third time. And it is, it's going to be a month this time of focused prayer for city combined with giving up food for a period of time to contend for God's breakthrough in our city. We've had about 25% participation in the last two years. I think we're missing something. I think we're missing that fasting and praying for our city is a good thing. It's something Jesus would do. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. His heart broke for his city. Maybe if we were fasting and praying, our heart might break more for our city. We might see things that we don't see. We might find people that we don't know exist in our city, and God might break our heart for our city. Why? Because we're actually fasting, and we're becoming like Jesus. There's a third thing. Scripture actually reading and studying the Bible and letting the Bible get into us. There's devotion. If you don't have a devotional rhythm, you should have it, and there's no right or wrong way. But if you don't, if you have a phone, you can get the Bible app, and there's a million different devotions that can guide you through the scriptures that helps you in your life. There are reading plans that you can get. There are Bibles that literally give you the devotional layout for the whole scriptures. There's all kind of resources that you and I can be a part of to let the Bible sink into us. Another one is this thing called community. Jesus lived in community. Did you know that? He was isolated, but how many, how did Jesus live in community? Anybody remember who he called? He called 12. Jesus had multitudes and crowds, but he had 12 that were closest to him that spent day and night with him, that learned from him. That was his community. And somehow, I don't know where we get the idea that community becomes optional. You come to Jesus, you go to church on Sunday. By the way, this is not community. This is a service. It's a gathering. Community is when you allow people into your life and you get into their life. Community's messy. (laughs) Read through Jesus working with his disciples. That's a lot of mess right there. We misunderstand each other. We offend each other. Sometimes we hurt each other. But if we're like Jesus, what do we do? We forgive each other. We've talked about community groups. We're at 50%. 50% of our churches in community groups. 50% of the church is not in community groups. And you know what I've watched too in the lives of people? You know, we go through crisis. You know, one of the things that we do? We isolate. We go through crisis. We don't show up to church on Sunday. And I've seen people pull out of community groups. Why? Because I'm going through too much, too much difficulty. Oh my gosh. Sorry, no, no offense here. That's the worst thing you can do. Because in isolation, it's only worse. But why not press into community when you're broken and you're hurting and you're flawed and you're failed and you have a disease or whatever it is? Push into community and let people surround you and pray for you and lift you up and help you walk through it together. 
That's what Jesus did with his disciples. That's what he calls us to do. It's, and it is. It's a discipline. Being in a community group is a discipline because I'll tell you, whenever your community group meets, 10 of the things are going to come up that are going to tell you they're more important. But they're not. Then the last thing. This is something Jesus never had to do, but it's something that we have to do. Confession. Like regular like almost sometimes scheduled. Now, sometimes it's like we always kind of people in, in evangelical circle, Protestant circles are kind of like, oh, the Catholics, they're so legalistic. You know, one thing the Catholics get that we don't get is the power of confession. Now, we don't have a confessional and we're not going to do that, okay? We're not going to go down that road. We're not going to put a little booth out in the lobby. You can come and confess your sins to me. But you know what the Bible tells us to do? To confess our sins to each other. There's the point of confession where even in your private time before the Lord, you're confessing your sin. Sometimes I'll just say, God, show me. I don't know what's wrong in me, but I know there's something not right, and he'll bring it to the surface. And sometimes that does for accountability. It requires, I gotta go find somebody else and say, hey, listen, this is what I've been dealing with. I need to confess this. And the power of sin gets broken in confession because it's out now. The power is in the isolation. The power is in it being secret. And when it's not secret anymore, then the enemy can't control you anymore because you have brothers and sisters supporting you. Now you have it out before God. God already knows it's there. And now you've acknowledged it. Now there's freedom. Now this is just a partial, partial list. But if you struggle like I have in trying to establish spiritual rhythms, let me throw up a slide. Two really good books that are, are very good on both these. One by, uh, this is kind of the classic, Richard Foster, The Celebration of Disciplines. That book talks about spiritual disciplines. The other one is The Spirit of the Disciplines by Dallas Willard. Dallas Willard's a little bit more heady, um, so, but he's really good, but both of them talk about the importance of these disciplines and what they look like in our life. It doesn't mean that, like, Dallas Willard lists, like, 20. I'm like, oh, man, I'm tired. But he's not saying, you got to do these 20 things. But there's certain things that you and I know. In fact, one of the things that he says is that usually the disciplines come at the point of our greatest temptation. So when we're tempted in a certain area, the very discipline that answers to that is the very discipline that needs to be in our life. For example, just as an example, if food is an issue to us, one of the disciplines that helps you to get power over food is fasting. Think about that. If isolation is something that you and I run from because we don't want to really hear from God, then maybe solitude is the thing that answers to that issue in our life. So those are a couple of good resources. I've read both of those books, and they're very, very helpful. And then the fourth thing. Again, this is not a comprehensive list, but this covers quite a bit of ground. If we're going to become like Jesus, then we are to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 says, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Ver, or Matthew chapter four, verse one says, then Jesus went or was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Why do I say this? Because this is what's, what sometimes is the missing link. So hear me on this. I don't mean to be offensive to anybody. But I know we use terms. The term Pentecostal describes a certain vein of the body of Christ, which we are a part of. But I want to tell you from the scriptures, to be Pentecostal is to be Christian. Because Jesus was. Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit. Why does Jesus say to his disciples, you will do greater things than I've done? When you and I read through the Gospels, Jesus did some crazy stuff. He raised people from the dead. 
He brought blind people their sight. He healed people from diseases. I mean, he did all these crazy things, and then he says, oh, by the way, you're going to do greater than this. Are you kidding me? How can Jesus say that? Because Jesus goes on in, in John chapter 14, 15, and 16 and says, by the way, I am going to the Father, but I'm going to send you another, and the word he uses in Greek is another one of identical identity. Someone just like me, and he said, I'm going to send you another comforter. And who did he send? In Acts chapter 2, he sends the Holy Spirit. How are you and I to do greater things to Jesus? Because the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the Spirit that lives in you and I. And the Scriptures are clear. When you say yes to Jesus and you surrender life, when you go through that process of reconciliation back to God, the Spirit of God now comes and dwells in you. But there's something else that happens somewhere in the process. Where not only do you get the God, God's Spirit living in you, but finally God's Spirit gets all of you. And you surrender yourself to Him. And that comes in various forms. There are people who be legalistic. You have to speak in tongues in order to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I don't hold to that view because I don't think that's biblical. Does that happen? Absolutely it happens to a lot of people. But the power of God comes on you. And guess what? Now you have the ability to come to learn to be like Jesus. If I ignore the Holy Spirit, I don't know how in the world I'm going to become like Jesus. Every single day I need his power in my life to try to be like Jesus. So let me give you an illustration that I've, I've said a million times. And this is, this, is, this is basically middle school stuff, but it's important. It's the idea of chocolate milk. Okay, if you haven't heard this, it's pretty basic, but this is kind of the way the Holy Spirit works. So if you have chocolate and you have milk... And so, if, especially we're talking about not powdered, okay? We're talking about the real good stuff. You know, Hershey's like thick chocolate syrup, right? So you pour a glass of milk, and then you pour the chocolate syrup, and what does the chocolate syrup do? Sinks to the bottom, doesn't it? So you have a nice, in my glass, it's like that. You got a nice thick layer of chocolate, and then on top of that is what? Is the milk. So is, is the chocolate in the milk? Yeah. But is it chocolate milk? No. So what do you have to do in order for it to become chocolate milk? You have to stir it. And once you start stirring it, what happens is the separation between the chocolate and the milk starts to disappear, and they start to become what? Chocolate milk. And you can't separate where the chocolate begins and the milk ends. It's all what? It's all mixed together. I'm convinced that that happens at various points in your journey in following Jesus where there has to be this stirring up in you of God's power. And then he equips you and he gifts you and he gives you things that you couldn't do on your own. And I'll tell you, there's nothing to be afraid of. Now I know there are human abuses when it comes to the work of the Holy Spirit. And too many people have thrown the baby out with the bathwater because those crazy Pentecostals have done crazy stuff. Listen, don't get caught up on our flesh. Submit yourself to the Holy Spirit and let him do what he wants to do in your life. The only way you can be like Jesus is if you submit yourself to being filled and empowered by God's Spirit. Otherwise, it's impossible. It's impossible. But that doesn't mean that it comes somehow with pride, somehow, oh, because I've got the Spirit stirred up in me, I'm better. No, 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 no. It means that you learn to be more humble in your life. It learns that you have to submit yourself to God and let Him do what He wants to do. And then I take a little bit of time, this final point, because this is the hardest one, but this is the key to everything. If you and I want to become like Jesus, we have to die to live. This is the one we hear about and we talk about, but we don't get it. So listen to some passages about this reality. Remember, Jesus died in order to be resurrected. 
So Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul says this. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. I died with him. My identity, my history, everything about me dies with Christ. Then he says this. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. It's not my life anymore. When I gave my life to Jesus, I died. I died to my career. I died to my money. I died to everything in my life. I died to all of that, and now it's not my agenda. It's God's agenda. Then Jesus, in his own words, Luke chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, which means die to yourself daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. How many of you ever heard that verse before? A lot of us have. Jesus is serious when he says that. You have to die to the way you used to live. Daily, you have to sacrifice. This is not earning your salvation. This is not getting a gold star from God. This is learning to become like Jesus. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as what? Living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. Why do we have to die to live? There's a couple things, because when you die, you can't take anything with you. Just think about that for a moment. When you physically die and you leave this world, you take nothing with you. So this understanding of death means that when you die to the old way of living, you don't get to get, bring anything with you. It all stays in the past. And what God wants to bring into your present from your past, you know what he does? He redeems it. He takes the brokenness of your life and he redeems it and makes it brand new. But the stuff he doesn't want in your life, he's not bringing with you. He's not packing a suitcase for you to bring it into your new life. It's staying in the old life. The other thing that's true about this concept of why we have to die is because in order to experience resurrection life, you have to die first. You don't get life first and then death no no we we think it's that way no death comes first then life we get it backwards why is this so important because this is one of the biggest issues for us and for the church overall we won't die to ourselves we'll die a little bit i'll give up a little bit but i'm not giving everything i'm just gonna remember i'm just gonna add jesus on to everything and he'll make he's just like a little seasoning that makes everything just a little bit better no it doesn't work that way see somebody who's truly died knows that they don't own anything. They don't demand anything. They have no rights. And so somebody who's died would say things like this. It's not my house, it's God's. What do you want me to do with it? Or they'd say things like, it's not my money, it's God's. What do you want me to do with it? It's not my career, it's God's. What does he want me to do with it? It's not my spouse. I belong to God. What should I do with them? not my child they belong to God it's not my time how about that we always say I don't have time it's not your time <laughs> it's God's time remember y you died to your calendar a long time ago right no we don't I think we, we serve the God of iCal more than we serve the God of the Bible gotta fit everything in my schedule but God gets squeezed right out so let me close with this. As I was just thinking about what, what I know I've experienced in my life and I, and I see so many times in the lives of other people is this tension and this struggle to be like Jesus. But when, the, when we have a dialogue and we talk, it always comes down to there's, there's just like one or two things. 
It's like when Jesus encountered that rich young ruler and he basically went down the list of the law and said, yeah, I got it. I was obedient in all of that since I was a kid. And then Jesus says, you still lack one thing. And what did Jesus say to him? Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Why would Jesus say that to that man? Because he hadn't died to his wealth. He wanted to add Jesus onto his wealth and say, yeah, we're good. I can legally obey all the law, but I, but I don't want to give up my money. And so for us, what, what happens, this is what happens. We come to Jesus, we die mostly, but then we don't die all the way. And so on the outside, there's this appearance of life, but on the inside, we're not really alive yet because we haven't really been resurrected because we're still kind of living in the dead ways of the past. And there's a really, there's a really important like, term that describes what that reality looks like. It's the term zombie. It is. Zombies are huge today, aren't they? Every movie seems to have some element of zombies, right? Like, Kim and I, we just went and saw the, the third installment of the Maze Runner, you know, trilogy. It's a zombie movie. They're all zombie movies, right? Right? Walking Dead, right? One of the biggest shows on TV. Like, oh, I don't watch that, Pastor John. Oh, I know you do. Come on. <laughs> zombies. So let me give to you the Oxford Dictionary definition of what a zombie is. A zombie is a corpse revived by witchcraft at, be, at that being that responds to stimulus as a person, but that does not experience consciousness. Why is that so important? I think there's a lot there. Did you think that maybe some of us, because we refuse to die fully, that there's parts of the enemy that still has a hold of us? And the existence that we live is not necessarily inspired by God, but it's something more that's inspired by the devil because the devil would love for you and I to die partially, but to not die all the way. Because if you don't die all the way, you can't experience the fullness of resurrection life. So if the enemy says, oh, you can give up a few things, but don't give them all up. So then what, what happens is the Christian life doesn't become resurrection life, it becomes zombie life. And we live this life thinking, yeah, this is it. And you and I are always only living a half-life because we haven't surrendered. We haven't died. Another term, we haven't sold out. I love being around people who have completely sold their lives out. And everything that they do, it's not that they don't over-spiritualize everything, but everything they do is about Jesus. The way they treat people around them, the way they love their family, the way they serve through the church, the way they go on vacation, the way they do everything. It's about Jesus. Because they've what? They've died to everything in their life and let God resurrect it in the way he wants it to be. So I'm going to ask you, ask the worship team to come and join me. We're going to sing one last song together. But I want you to close your eyes because I'm going to close with a passage of scripture that describes this journey, the reality of our lives, what Jesus has done, and what God is wanting to do in our lives today. This is... Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and I'm asking you just to close your eyes because I want you to listen to the words of Scripture describe our journey. So Paul writes this. He says, In the past, you were spiritually dead because of your sins and the things you did against God. Yes, in the past, you lived the way the world lives, following the ruler of the evil powers that are above the earth. 
that same spirit is now working in those who refuse to obey God. In the past, all of us lived like them, trying to please our sinful selves and doing all the things our bodies and minds wanted. We should have suffered God's anger because we were sinful by nature. We were the same as all other people. But God's mercy is great, and he loved us very much. Though we were spiritually dead because of the things we did against God, he gave us new life with Christ. You have been saved by God's grace. And he raised us up with Christ, and he gave us a seat with him in the heavens. He did this for those in Christ Jesus so that for all future time, he could show the very great riches of his grace by being kind to us in Christ Jesus. I mean that you have been saved by grace through believing. You did not save yourselves. It was not a gift. It was a gift from God. It was not the result of your own efforts, so you cannot brag about it. But then the final verse is this. God has made us what we are. In Christ Jesus, God made us to do good works, to be like Jesus, which God planned in advance for us to live out lives doing. Keeping your eyes closed, I want you to let that settle in. Jesus has brought you and I to a place in our lives where he's seen the death and destruction and the sinfulness of our past and has paid for that, but then calls us forward into new life through the process of death. And why does Jesus do that? Because he loves us, because he wants to spend eternity with us, but because the God of the universe designed and created you to do the works that he designed for you to do, which looks a whole lot like being like Jesus. He wants you to experience life, a life that brings fulfillment, a life that is not absent of challenges. It's not somehow immune to pain or suffering, but it's a life that is experienced in fulfillment because you and I begin to walk and live and talk and think and act like Jesus. So as we close with one last song, I'm going to pray and then we're going to close this song, but I want us to be reminded that what God is saying to us today, there's some things we've walked through, is that there's something that has to change in us in order for us to be like Jesus. And for some of us today, maybe right now, it's time for us to die and surrender. It's time to let go of those one or two or three things that we've tried to carry with us and fully surrender it to Jesus so that we can be like him. So Jesus, I ask right now that as we surrender ourselves to you once again, Lord, I don't, I don't know what our journeys are. There's some here that maybe they've never even, don't even know who you are yet, but others have known you for years and years and years. But Lord, all of us come to that place where we have to let go. And in letting go, Lord, we are resurrected to the life that you created us, that we are filled with your spirit. We are empowered, Lord Jesus, to be like you. So Jesus, whatever that looks like in our lives today, I pray that you would come. If it's surrender, if it's the power of your spirit, if it's understanding your teachings, if it's establishing rhythms in our life that are healthy, 
if it's just simply being obedient to what you've called us to. Jesus, give us the courage to be like you so that others around us might know who you are because they see you in us. We ask these things, Jesus, in your name.